Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you're having a great holiday week and enjoying peaceful, cheerful, wonderful times with maybe just you, or maybe you are lucky enough to be surrounded safely by friends and family. As we move into the final chapters of The End of Me Today, just a last reminder that the book in physical form is available through my website at myyogaaudio.com. You can also find the links on Instagram at my.yoga.audio. Thanks for sharing with those you know and love who may appreciate this content. So today we're moving into chapter nine called Satnam. Satnam is a seed mantra from the Sikh tradition that is often translated from Sanskrit to English as true name but it can also be translated as truth is my identity. The vibrational meaning behind satnam means an experience of your own consciousness. In yoga, when saying or chanting this mantra, you aim to connect to the root of your spine and go right up through the brain and into your auric field and tune in to the symphony of all that is your own being and the expression of truth of all beings. Satnam is less of a word or an expression as it is an experience of the true essence of you aligning with all truth. In recognizing the truth of my identity, I needed to examine not only my current life circumstances, but the ones from long ago as well, and recognize the patterns that kept presenting themselves. And to be sure, there is more than enough in this lifetime to make me want to keep my mouth shut. I truly believe that I'm one of the world's most positive people, but I think that comes from knowing how to dredge myself up out of the depths of despair and find a reason to keep going. I read about celebrities who become wealthy and famous with themselves and their message, but had childhoods that would make you shudder like Oprah Winfrey or Maya Angelou. And I find solace and hope that every one of us can find our way out. It may not be to fame or fortune, but sanity and true joy are absolutely worth the trip. Yoga has helped me to dig deep into essential truths about myself that I don't believe I would have found otherwise. In what I call the yogic state, I come closest to the feelings and experiences I had when I was on the other side. A feeling of oneness with myself, with everyone else, everyone else in the room, and if I'm lucky, the city, the country, and the planet. When I'm practicing and find my yogic state, the room around me ceases to exist. I usually wind up with my eyes closed and what I see or hear can be anything or nothing at all. Sometimes I can clearly see the auras of others, living or dead, or visions or insights into my own life or those of other people. Often, things don't make sense in the moment, but later, what I saw or experienced will find its way to a more significant meaning out in the world. When I'm teaching, and find my yogic state. I speak when spoken through. This is a concept I learned about in my work with Shakti Rising. Speaking when spoken through isn't anything scary. Forget what you've seen or heard on television and movies. 
It simply means speaking the truth that is coming through me at that moment. I don't know where it comes from or who exactly it is, usually. It's also a mixture of how I'm feeling that day, what is present and true for me in my life, and the wisdom that comes through to me from somewhere else. Combined with yoga postures meant to strengthen and release throughout the body, it becomes an experience for the class to tap into this wisdom for themselves. It happens in a small or big way in every class I teach and in one-on-one sessions with people who ask for my help. Recently, I reduced my teaching schedule because I noticed something happening to me in classes. Burnout is a word that is often used when you overdo it, but it was slightly different than that for me. Once I realized how strong the speaking when spoken through force was in my teaching, I began to seek the meaning ahead of time and plan and structure the classes around this. When I was teaching six to eight times per week, plus occasional weekend workshops, volunteer work, my full-time job, and my family, you can see how quickly this plan failed me. I realized that I was trying way too hard and was starting to lose the joy of teaching. And as a result, less messaging was coming through. My class attendance levels dipped and I was not my joyful grounded self. Of course, we all have good days and bad days, but I knew I had to make a change. I teach a little less now and work with more private clients one-on-one and it feels a lot better. Also, what a gift for me to have more time to practice for myself now. I'll reiterate, this has been my experience. I believe it was one of the reasons I was sent back not once, not twice, but three times. For other people, finding your nirvana, so to speak, may come in the form of another activity such as meditation, which I also incorporate daily in my personal life and classes, along with running, swimming, hiking, gardening, and just being in nature. You will know what it is for you. Take the chance and look deeply within and at the experiences of your life that have left you feeling blissful. It has nothing to do with checking out and addictive, socially cultivated behaviors that we all know too well. If you are feeling like you don't know how to connect to your goodness within, try the following meditation. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. Put your hand on your heart and the other hand on your belly. As you breathe out, recall the first time you felt absolute joy. Don't judge yourself or this memory, whether you were three or 43. Just be in what the memory is. Stay with it. Breathe in it. Remember it back into your consciousness as if it is happening again right now. Let it spread throughout your body into every little nook and cranny of your lovely self and feel at home with it being there. Cherish it. Cherish you. How does this feel? At what other times have you felt this feeling? 
if you can't think of any, keep coming back to that first memory and get used to how it feels so that you can recognize it again when it comes up for you. Because now, I promise you, it will find you and you will find it again. Finding your connection. I've spent some time in my life being a semi-competitive distance runner, and the infamous runner's high also comes close to this feeling, but to me it is more singular. The runner's high has me feeling physically and mentally insurmountable, that my stamina was unending and I could run forever. I was connected to a higher power, to be sure. And the effects of this surge caused me to no longer feel my legs or my arms or even my breath. I became aware that I was a functioning being and my consciousness in a way completely disconnected from my body. I was no longer feeling the ground or my breath or my heartbeat, but I didn't feel connected to a greater consciousness in the way that I do in yoga. In yoga for me, it's much different. When you start looking for your source or connection to consciousness, don't fret about what it is. Find your unique solution, the one that links the conscious action of your breath to freedom in you, in whatever way you can find it. No matter what it is, it will bring you closer to your truth. I have a long list of life experiences, any one of which could have sent me down a very dark road at any time. If I'm to continue being authentically honest, I have had very bleak moments and periods of time that my light was so dim that it scared even me. I lost both of my parents at a very young age, and I then went on to endure childhood molestation, domestic violence, date rape, and physically dying three times. It's almost funny to see all those things strung together in one sentence because any and all of them could have been my undoing. And again, if I'm really honest, there was also a time in my early 20s before I had my children when my current lifetime memories of loss, violence, molestation, and rape caught up with me and I contemplated suicide. Since I had seen the other side and knew it was so good and warm and comforting, like the best down blanket on a cold day in front of the fire, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be with my mother. I wanted to be with my great-grandparents whom I'd been fortunate to know, live with, and love when I was a child. Maybe there my father and I could actually have a conversation that mattered. The harshness of life had dragged me to the bottom of the pool and my hair was being sucked into the drain and I wanted to be in that realm of love and never, ever, ever leave it again. I deserved it after all, after what I'd been through. What was the purpose of showing me how perfect death was only to deny me entry? I thought about it, and I gathered what I thought would be good tools to do it with, but it didn't work. If we're counting, I might have died a fourth time if I'd gone through with what I was planning. But my mother Rhea came through once more and prevented me from completing what I had started. She literally would not allow me to take the action I was attempting. A physical force made me stop. So what then does this mean? To go and come back, go and come back, go and come back. 
I've asked myself this question, and so have the few others who know my story. I know now that one of the reasons was to teach. Yoga is my life's work as a student and as a teacher, and it connects me back to that place over and over again. Ironically, at the end of most yoga classes, we guide students into shavasana, or corpse pose. People jokingly refer to this as morbid, but it has nothing to do with literal death. It's the death of the ego. Each time we do yoga, theoretically, we are lying down to rest or die each time, and then we rise up again, fresh, ready to start again and again and again. In real life, we all die little or big deaths over and over and over again. In varying degrees, we die a little or a lot every day. Think about that. Every harsh criticism that others cast out on us or that we believe about ourselves. Anytime anyone ever said a mean thing to you or that you said to yourself. Anytime you went through a really bad breakup and it felt like you were going to die. So many deaths and so many chances to start again. How do you respond to these periods in the deep? Recall briefly your first broken heart. Was it a romantic relationship or something else? For example, I have chronic lumbar, lower, and thoracic, mid-upper spinal pain. My low back has discs that are completely compressed and also a slight S-curve, so the x-rays explain that pain. And a regimen of yoga, an occasional chiropractic and acupuncture adjustments help me tremendously. But what about the upper back? After practicing yoga for years and getting regular chiropractic care, my current chiropractor asked me about my heart. What? She asked me when my heart had been broken. Was I nursing an old wound? Because something was living in and blocking my heart. I chuckled and said, sure, I'd had some heartbreak in my teenage years, but I'd met my husband young. I really didn't feel that to be accurate for me. She probed some more and asked me about significant losses in my life. Had anyone major in my life passed away when I was young? Sure, my great-grandparents, but that was expected. They were in their 80s and 90s. My Aunt Carolyn, too, had passed when I was young, and that had been devastating. Since I couldn't seem to recall the obvious, she looked at my new patient intake notes. Both your parents died when you were little, she asked. Yes, I responded, but I can barely remember my dad, and I don't remember my mom at all. She just looked at me. Then it sunk in, and I told her about how after my mom had her accident and was in the hospital in a coma, I had apparently cried for three days nonstop. I didn't sleep or eat. No one could console me. No one knew what to do with me. Different family members and friends came, but the result was the same. Finally, my mother's mother, the woman who eventually raised me, came and picked me up, and so I've been told I immediately calmed, put my head on her shoulder, and fell asleep. When my mother died a few days later, the decision was made for me to return to Canada with my grandmother on a temporary basis until my dad could get back on his feet. Could this be the cause of my physical pain, manifesting in my body in the only way that would eventually get me to listen? 
This is the second reason the trip to the afterlife or whatever you want to call it reached out to me to bring something back that has healing embedded within it for all of us. When there is no medically sourced diagnosis for our pain, we must turn inward. Emotions have the ability to affect our physicality, just as physical pain manifests intense emotions and agony. We don't question that. Years of physical pain bring a measurable toll not just to the body, but to the mind and the spirit. I think most of us accept this as common sense. When you are worn down physically, eventually the spirit suffers. Well-meaning people visit you in home or in hospice and encourage you to keep your chin up because we all know how much physical limitation makes us feel caged in and can wear down the mind and even the most jubilant attitude. But look at it the other way too. Everything from minor to major pain and the absence of provable medical condition also has an explanation. We are often just reluctant to do this work because, let's face it, it hurts too much, and there's no easy prescription to make it go away. I made a trip back to Bermuda, where I had been born, when Richard and I got married in 1996 and again in 2008. On that second trip, I spoke to one of my uncles about the man who had been driving the fire truck that had killed my mother. His name was Victor. Through the recounting of the story from my family and from a couple of days spent at the library viewing microfiche files from the newspaper, I was able to put together the last days of my mother's life. July 1974, Hamilton, Bermuda. On July 2nd, 1974, my mother left for her job as a waitress at a high-end hotel in a wealthy area of the island. I was six months old and was at home with a trusted friend and caregiver named Margaret. My father also had a job requiring he work evenings as a bar manager in another establishment. My mother rode a moped to and from work and had pulled up to a stoplight at an intersection at the bottom of a hill. As she crossed the intersection when the light turned green, she was struck directly by a fire truck that barreled through the intersection because the brakes had failed while it was out on a test run. My mother, her scooter, and the fire truck flew off the edge of a cliff just beyond the intersection and landed on the beach below. Incredibly, everyone involved survived the initial impact. The drivers of the truck initially did not realize that they had hit another person, as they were just so caught up in the crash and the brakes failing, but they were able to walk away from the scene. Hours later, when a crane lifted the truck up off the beach, they were horrified to discover my mother underneath. In the ensuing week, my mother had one of her arms amputated. It was crushed beyond repair. When my grandmother arrived from Canada, she was not prepared for what she saw a completely unrecognizable and swollen daughter who was comatose and missing a limb. Rhea's lungs were collapsing and continuously filling with fluid, and although she remained unconscious, she stayed alive for just over a week. My grandmother tells me that she talked to Rhea every day, telling her to hang on, that she would get better, that she had a baby and a family and so much to live for. And I believe my mother did just that. Hang on. 
The doctors eventually had to tell my grandmother that things were not going well and she needed to prepare herself to say goodbye. My mother's injuries were far too severe to recover from. My grandmother did not want to submit to this conclusion and at first she refused. However, she eventually returned to my mother's bedside and calmly told her that she could let go, that she would take care of me, that everything would be okay, that if the pain was too much and it was time to go, then go. My grandmother says that in that moment, my mother's eyes fluttered open, the machines attached to her recognized an uptick in brain and bodily activity, that my mother's mouth started moving, and a tear ran down her face. My grandmother rushed out of the room to get help, convinced that my mother was coming back. But it was not to be so, and Maria Monica Van Brabant, Mrs. Maria Painter, died on July 10th, 1974, at the age of 23. When I found the newspaper articles detailing the accident, the drivers, and the trial that happened years later that resulted in no charges, I told my uncles that I wanted to meet the man who had been driving the truck. Apparently, he was a friend of my mother's and at one point had supposedly confessed feelings for her that she did not reciprocate. He had been drinking alcohol that night and was a volunteer firefighter called in at the last moment to test out a new truck. At the trial, the news article stated that the other man in the fire truck noticed warning lights coming up on the dashboard before they got to the hill where the accident with my mother occurred, and that he had advised they turn around and go back. Victor, though, did not listen to that advice, and it remains unknown whether alcohol, emotion, or just overall poor judgment resulted in what came next. My uncle said it was not a good idea to see Victor. Revenge or anger wasn't necessary, nor was it good to stir it all up these years later. I let him know that I just wanted to lay eyes on him. I wanted to see the man who had done this and maybe exchange a few words with him. And it wasn't out of anger. I just wanted some sort of closure, and I felt like this might be it. I had no intention of leveling any kind of acrimony towards him. My uncle became choked up and told me it wasn't possible to see Victor. I asked him why and learned that Victor had taken his own life only a few years earlier. While he was never convicted at a legal trial and didn't serve jail time, he was convicted by the court of public opinion. Apparently, Victor hung himself after a lifetime of judgment and suspicion from the entire community. I wasn't sure in learning about this what hurt more. There were so many layers of loss and pain. And amazingly, I felt instant compassion and love for this man, who apparently might have even loved my mother and died never being loved by another. So this is another lesson that I believe I bring back. Holding on to anger, even when everyone and everything in the world tells you it's justified, only hurts you. Forgiveness helps you more than you would ever believe possible. And true forgiveness comes from being able to feel true connection and compassion to another being, even when they have hurt you. I'm not a licensed therapist, and I'm not looking to be one. And I in no way want to gloss over people's pain or sense of justice. But 
if you are unable to find a path to compassion and forgiveness, you will be unable to heal the part of you that is hurting. Sometimes, often actually, it's yourself that you need to forgive more than any other. This is the hardest work of all because we are most ferocious with our own selves. We say and do things to our psyche, our body, and our spirit that we would never say or wish upon a worst enemy. It's really hard to spot this dragon sometimes. When I held on to that pain of losing my mother, I believed that it manifested into serious back pain 40 years later. I'd long since thought that I'd gotten over the effects of her death, but I was wrong. I had sealed it up tight and even formed a barbed wire fence around it to be sure that I and no one else could find it. What other kinds of love had I been shutting out of my life because of that defense mechanism? What about the anger that goes with a broken heart? For all the yoga I'd been doing and even my steady chiropractic appointments, I had buried deep a boiling, festering wound that I was determined to hold on to. I had to forgive myself for holding on to that baggage of hurt, and I had to forgive everyone and everything associated with that accident. But what about Victor? Unrequited love and a bad combination of drinking and driving resulted in the death of the woman he had feelings for, and when she died, he never went to jail. I don't know a lot about how the law works, but I know enough that in 1974, they didn't have the measures in place to convict people of DUIs like they do now. However, from what I've gleaned, Victor suffered a far worse type of imprisonment than the legal system could have imposed. It is physically painful for me to close my eyes and think about what led to Victor taking his own life. The same pain I feel if I close my eyes and think about the crane pulling that truck up off my mother on the beach. And an eye for an eye does not feel good to me. It truly feels downright awful. Chapter 10, Gayatri. March 1986 in the American South. When I was 12, my grandparents and I drove from southern Ontario, Canada, down to Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, for my winter break from school. I was excited to go. I was excited for sunshine, for going on rides, to be able to swim and to get away. The ride there was unremarkable. We drove almost straight through, staying with a family friend overnight who lived in the northern part of Florida. But the really disturbing memories are from our trip back home. It started at a restaurant in Georgia where we had stopped for lunch. They told us they didn't have any tables available and we would have to wait. We watched as they sat table after table of other families, but not us. My grandfather became irritated and asked why everyone else was being seated, but not us. We had requested non-smoking and we were finally seated in the middle of the smoking section. I thought that was extremely odd, and I didn't want to stay. I could feel and see all the eyes of those in the restaurant looking at me, and they weren't smiling. What was going on? I stood up and asked our waitress where the restrooms were. She replied that they were out of order. 
So I sat back down. My grandfather got up, went and found the restrooms, and it turns out they were not out of order, and he pointed me in the direction of them. When I got there, two big burly men blocked my entrance to the restroom, and so I returned to the table, frightened. When our lunch came, the waitress slammed my drink on the table, spilling at least the top third of it. She glared at me, didn't apologize. My grandfather, in a low voice, said, Hey there, watch it now, to her. But she ignored him and walked away. The food wasn't even what I had ordered, and it looked sloppy. I didn't want to eat it. I asked my grandparents what was happening. Why was everyone being so mean to us? My grandmother explained that with my, quote, tan from being out in the sun and my short curly hair, that my black heritage was clear as day to everyone in the restaurant and that we were in a part of the country that didn't like black people. I was stunned and mortified and I wanted to leave immediately. I'd had my share of name calling and minor bullying at pretty much an all-white school from time to time, but this was something else entirely. I picked at my food because I didn't want to be wasteful, but it was awful. Within a couple of hours of being back on the road, my body began to feel the effects of whatever they had done to the food as my stomach rejected it over and over again. Intense vomiting and diarrhea meant that we had to stop the car often, and then if the attendant saw me, sometimes they wouldn't let my grandfather pump the gas or allow me to use the restroom. We had to keep me lying low on the back of the car while he pulled up and then drove around to the side to the restroom so that hopefully they wouldn't see me. Sometimes we had to stop on the side of the road. It was physical and emotional torture. I remember thinking I was going to die. By the end of the day, I had developed a raging fever and was laying down in the back seat of our car, shivering and unable to talk. The tipping point came the next day when I was starting to feel a little bit better and we pulled up into a small town in Tennessee. My grandparents wanted to look at an antique market and said they would drop me off on the main street, not too far away in town, to look at stores and books instead if I wanted to. I had a little bit of spending money and I looked forward to it. I wandered into a diner and the waitress was sweet and got me a Coke and I sat at the bar and enjoyed it. As I left the diner, I noticed a sheriff-type looking guy get up from his seat and follow me out. I next went into the pharmacy and bought a Bonnie Bell Lip Smacker Rollerball Lip Gloss in cherry flavor. I was excited about that. It smelled good and tasted good and all the girls in my grade wore it. My lips were chapped and sunburned from a sad combination of being sick and for swimming for hours at the hotel pool. The lady working behind the counter there was sweet to me too, and she waved and smiled and said, Hey there, Harv, to the sheriff-looking man who had come inside as well. I felt a little weird leaving and seeing him stand by the door very close to me and just staring at me as I walked past him. Next, I went into a clothing store, and there a nice lady said hello to me and asked if I needed any help. I explained I was just waiting for my grandparents who were up the road and I was just trying to keep busy. Harv came into this store after me as well and just stood there, glaring. I was beginning to feel alarmed and I looked at the sales lady in fear. 
She shook her head and patted my hand and called out, Hey, Harv, you be nice now, you hear? I continued walking up the street and decided to head all the way back up towards the antique barn and find my grandparents. I didn't feel safe. Harv walked behind me the whole time. He was talking, muttering really, but I couldn't hear him clearly, and so I walked as fast as I could. My stomach was still weak, and my spirit was weary too. I was afraid, and yet I moved those feet as fast as I could without running. Because part of the walk was through the woods and a bit of a dirt road, I became more fearful as I lost the presence of other eyes and businesses around us. As soon as I could see the barn, I did start to run, and much to my horror, Harv did too. I breathlessly came upon my grandparents in negotiation with the antique dealer, and I was trying to talk when Harv came right up, red-faced, sweating, and screaming at the top of his lungs, Next time y'all come out here, you keep that thing on a leash, as he pointed, but did not look directly at me. He was heaving and huffing and puffing, and I think I fell down on the ground. It felt like the wind had been knocked out of me and I had been physically punched. My grandfather roared to life, immediately striding towards Harv, arms raised and ready to fight. My grandmother came over to me right away and started half dragging me towards the car. She told me to get in it and get down, and she locked the doors. She got in with me too. I don't even know what happened between Harv and my grandfather. I think the antique shop owner might have intervened to keep them apart, because within a few moments, during which I swear I held my breath the whole time, he was back in the car and we just kept driving until we got back to Canada. We stopped for gas where we could, but as we got farther and farther north, this became less of a problem. I share this here now because this was a type of death for me too. I suspect it was for my grandfather also. As a white man raising his mixed-race grandchild who was not even biologically related to him and of whom he didn't approve of initially but had grown to love and protect, I can only imagine how his heart had burst. I can only imagine how frightened and mad he was. If they had actually come to blows, what consequences might have come of that? I shudder to think about it. He took the next right action in getting all of us out of there as quickly as possible. No more lingering. No more pretending everything was okay when it was clearly not. I also share this because it was the first time I experienced a hatred and racism towards me that I fully realized actually had nothing to do with me. I remember saying to my grandmother that it made no sense. How could someone hate someone else that they did not even know? She explained that it was hatred of all black people and that it didn't matter who I was as a person. I couldn't grasp it, but my young mind knew instinctually that this was very, very wrong. How could so many people feel this way? You can call it naive, but I call it truth. All of us know these truths. How it shows up in our lives and experiences will always be different, but the proof is there. Go back. Go back to the first time you knew something that had happened or was said that was really wrong, whether it had to do with you or someone else. Remember that feeling? You do. Did someone else quash it? Did you? 
This is not a blame game. This is more like hide and seek. So connect to those feelings and don't ignore them when it rears up in your life. We did not speak of this particular incident again in our family, but I wish we had. I wrote about it in my journal, but I didn't tell my friends or other family. I immediately took the blame for the incident. If only I hadn't been there. If only I'd just stayed with my grandparents in the barn instead of wanting to go out on my own. If only I did the most damage to myself by choosing to push down the knowing what was right and wrong about the situation and by choosing to feel bad about who I was. The last time I saw my grandfather in physical form was about two weeks before I moved to California. He had been checked into the hospital again for recurring pneumonia. He was 91. I knew. We both knew somehow that this would be the last time we would see each other. I broke down. I apologized for all the trouble I had ever brought him. I apologized for the times I was a jerk when I was a teenager. I apologized for not telling him more often what a good dad he had been to me in my own biological father's stead. And you know what? He just looked at me and smiled a huge smile and said, I don't know what you're talking about, Megan. You have brought nothing but joy to my life. That other stuff, it never even mattered. I love you. You've always been my sweetheart. A little over a year after we moved to California, just as I had reapplied for my passport in preparation for a trip home, I received word that he was back in the hospital and it was looking bad. Sepsis had taken over his body. In a panic, I looked into contacting the embassy and the Canadian government to see if I could travel without my passport and to explain the situation. It was evening. My uncle Guy explained to me that I would never make it in time. He wasn't expected to last the night. And so I cried and cried and cried. I sang the Gayatri mantra over and over again. When I would begin to emotionally choke on the sounds, I would listen to the Tina Malia version instead. The Gayatri mantra is said to heal all wounds and bring lightness to all those who chant or even hear it. I dreamt of my grandfather that night, watching him pass over into eternal sweetness, enmeshed in light and warmth. He was smiling. He was free. Om Bur Svaha Tat Savitur Varenyam Bargo Devasya Dimahi Dio Yona Prachodayat. That's the Gayatri Mantra. It translates as, let us honor the unity of divine spirit that pervades all realms of existence, the earth, the atmosphere, and the heavens. May that most brilliant divine light protect us, sustain us, and illuminate our consciousness that we might realize our inherent goodness, our inborn divinity, and our unity with all that is. By this knowledge, may our actions be inspired. Outro. Our stories are never really finished. I struggled when writing this book to come up with the appropriate ending. 
I mean, isn't the conclusion of a book supposed to be where everything is tied up neatly together and everyone feels good and you've come away with the answer? In Hollywood stories, maybe, but not in real life, usually. Could I? Dare I talk about finding ways to help even just one other person to find their own magnificent revelation of compassion, communion with higher self, and forgiveness? That's a tall order, but I hope this book is that starting point for at least a few of you. That is my honest wish. In writing and sharing our stories, the end goal, I believe, is to turn the reader's personal blend of chaos into some sort of order and craft a message, your message from that mess. So what comes after that then is doing the next right thing, the right thing for you. I mean, each time we are faced with a conundrum, we have to ask ourselves, what is right for me? What is right for others? What is right for this situation right now? Not tomorrow or next week or next year. Not what your mom said 17 years ago or what your uncle said is most appropriate, but right now. This approach can get us safely and lovingly out of almost any situation. My grandmother just celebrated her 92nd birthday. And while still alive, she has noticeably slowed down now. And she was born just before World War II. Her life has seen the arc of so many incredible things. She doesn't understand the concept of the internet or Wi-Fi. And when I showed her how a laptop computer could show a picture of the church in her hometown in Belgium, she was at first delighted and then was totally terrified. She's had several brushes with death in the last 10 years or so, including bouts of cancer, mini strokes, heart attacks, falls, and severe flu episodes. In some of those instances, I have dreamt it and met her in those in-between spaces and woke up to find out she was in hospital. In one of my conversations with her, she talked about meeting and approaching death. She could feel herself slipping away. She talked about feeling good, letting go, and feeling warm and cozy. She saw Rhea and they talked. I saw this moment too in my dream. But then, in the back of her mind, she still had not been ready to go, and she held back. Her lingering thought at the time was, I wish I'd had more time to figure out the end of me. When I asked her to explain that, she had a hard time. She talked about funeral arrangements, her will, her belongings, how all of that was set up so that we, her kids and family, would not have to worry about it when she's gone. So what is it then, I asked her. She said that it was hard for her to understand what the end of her life actually meant. She is a raised and practicing devout Catholic. She's adhered to the principles taught to her by the church as best she can. And for as long as she can remember, she has always trusted in what she was told about life and death. But she's feeling less sure about all that now. She's not feeling like she's done with her life, with herself, with her concept of self, of me. Her life has always been about surviving first and then raising a family. Continuously building, sewing, cooking, renovating, always going, going, going. She never had a 
long-term career, though for a time she worked as the head sewing consultant for Sears in the 1950s. Now, though, she spends so much of her time alone, and she can't move very fast, nor can she see or hear very well. She spends hours a day in prayer and meditation. She can only live literally from moment to moment, and this is a new experience for her. As someone who throughout her life has worried and fretted about the countless what-ifs of the future on a constant loop and repeat in her mind, this is quite a return to stasis. She physically wants to go on and has prepared herself above and beyond to do so in the literal and logical sense. Her me, though, still has something to teach her, it seems. In the end, then, the return to life from death the return to self, either through metaphorical or actual death, the me of all this keeps bringing us back to where we need to be at any moment. It offers up what our next right thing is and it shows up in ways that we don't expect. And most of all, it wants us to find it. For some of us, these realizations may not start really percolating until we've reached nearly a century of life. And for others, the awareness starts very soon after birth. And on this day of my 44th year, I am finalizing these last words of what I want to share with you about the end of me. I believe in the power and tradition of storytelling. By telling our stories, we give others permission to tell theirs too and provide the opportunity to find and further human connection. At any moment, the essence, birth, and death of the me is waiting to be called out, to be able to show up for you, to emerge and shine forth. It is in our true recognizing and welcoming of this old friend, and then in choosing to share it first within ourselves, to make it real again, that allows us to begin to navigate with it back out into the physical world. It is there to be found by everyone so that they too can find their own sweet return to life and to death. For they are both really one and the same thing. <laughs>